When you think about your relationship with Jesus Christ, you probably think about love. At least I hope, I hope you do. God's love for you, the love that you have for him, the, the love that he's put in you for others, other human beings who are created in his image. When you think about Jesus Christ, love should really be preeminent in your thoughts and your feelings at that moment. It should be a focal point anytime we reflect on him or consider him. Uh, John states, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. So if we know God and God is love, then we know love. And it stands to reason then that his love should permeate everything that we say and do. It should guide our decisions and dealings with one another, even, uh, even difficult dealings and decisions with one another. And yet the first thought for many people when they think about Jesus Christ, when they think about God and Christianity, about the church, for many people, their first thought or impression is the law. Following Christ means I cannot do this or I cannot do that. Following Christ means I can't feel this way or that way. I shouldn't think like this or like that and on and on. And a lot of people, when they think about God or church or the whole concept of Christianity, immediately they think about a set of rules, rules that they have to keep. And it all seems to get a bit muddled even further when we read some of the scriptures, some of the scriptures like this letter from James, because at a casual reading, it can seem like he's really just going after these Jewish Christians with a big hammer. Pastor Christ often says, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, that's true. And he's pounding away at them for not following the rules. James, it seems that way. And there certainly is a sense of that happening in this letter that he wrote to the churches. And he keeps at it here in chapter 4, which we'll see today as we continue our sermon series, James the Just. And so... People sometimes get hung up on parts of Scripture, like James's letter, because at face value, it can appear that he's almost contradicting other Scripture, as he keeps emphasizing to these Jewish Christians, works, 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 which our brains tend to translate as law, 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 right? And yet, at the same time, the Apostle Paul said, love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13.10. In Galatians 5.14, he says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, we know Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? On, on these two commandments, these love commandments, he said, Depend all the law and prophets. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. So why doesn't James talk about love fulfilling the law like everyone else, right? Well, he does. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 8, he wrote, if you really fulfill the royal law, he's talking about this statement by Jesus, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Clearly, James acknowledges and agrees that love is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. And his letter actually, in no way at all, contradicts that. 
In fact, it reinforces the concept, as we'll see today, uh, and as he wrote in chapter 2, that love is the fulfillment of the law. So what James is actually pointing out here in chapter 4 is not contrary to the teachings of Christ or Paul or John at all. What he's pointing out is that these very same teachings of Jesus Christ are what these Christians that he's writing to are failing to follow. He says they're failing at love. They're failing at love. And the way that he knows that is because their lack of love for one another. It's obvious in their works, which are not producing good spiritual fruit. And so if you were here for chapter 2, where James said that faith without works is dead, you'll remember he was teaching them that works are not requirements for salvation. They are evidence of salvation, which means they're also evidence of our genuine love for one another. And again, John said, anyone who does not love does not know God. Think about that. John said, anyone who does not love does not know God. That sounds a lot like faith without works is dead, doesn't it? Can you see how it all begins to tie together? Our works, which testify to a genuine faith, are expressions of love which is the fulfillment of the law. It's an outward proof of an inner faith. And so in reverse, if there's no love, then there are no good works. And if there are no good works, then there is no genuine faith. It's a progression in James' teaching, which absolutely confirms the teachings of Christ. And so here in chapter 4, he continues this line of reasoning, and he really brings it to a climax. James draws a proverbial line in the sand and he challenges all of us to choose which side of that line we're going to stand on, right? And if you picture the kid on the playground drawing the line in the sand, we think about that happening. It usually conjures up some really confrontational images, maybe something very negative. And James message here is, of course, very confrontational. It is. And yet if we pay attention as we read it, what we find is that the message at its core is really one that is about the love of Christ. Okay, so let's turn there together to James chapter four. He brings all of these ideas about God's love, about our faith and our works together to this definitive point here in chapter four. And with that point, He draws a line in the sand. We're going to focus on the first 10 verses of the chapter this morning because of the way that James divides them. I love the structure of this. He takes the first four verses and he describes life on one side of the line. And then in verse 5, he shows us the line. And then in verses 6 through 10, he describes life on the other side of the line. So let's read James 4. We'll start with the first four verses. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James lays it all out here in no uncertain terms. And he's, he's really been building up to this point in his letter. In these first four verses, he establishes the world side 
of the line. If you're keeping an outline, this is point one. He, he establishes the world side of the line, okay? Which is what? He says it's enmity with God. The English definition of enmity is hostility or animosity towards something or someone. It can even mean um, pure hatred. And in the ancient Greek, uh, the language that this letter was originally written in, the word enmity is the word ekthra, which is to have hatred towards someone or something. So, as usual, very strong language from James. He says, if you choose to love the world, and by the way, he means worldliness, not people. Right? We're supposed to love people. He's saying if you choose to love worldliness, the ways of the world, then you're choosing to hate God. It doesn't get much more confrontational than that, which is absolutely motivated, and this is the key, by love for the people of God. And this ties right into the next section of, of this letter that we're going to look at next week. We talk about judgment uh, that people throw around so often these days. But, but keeping with the theme for now, James lists several attributes, and we're going to run through them quickly, of the life that is lived at enmity with God. This, this is what your, your life looks like, according to James. When you love the ways of the world, okay? So going back, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He's talking about insatiable lust. The word passions in this verse is the Greek word hedone. It's the root of the English word hedonism, right? James is referring to situations where we're constantly driven by our selfish, carnal passions to the point of ongoing fighting. With one another. So he's not talking about an argument uh, between two people over a single issue. He's talking about an ongoing, constant combativeness in our relationships that comes from an insatiable lust that longs to take and take and take from others because we're focused on ourselves instead of on God or on other people. Anytime you put two selfishly lustful people together, and we see this in. Uh, in premarital counseling over the years with people who probably aren't ready to get married. Anytime you take two really selfishly lustful people and put them together, their desires to please themselves will always override their desire to please each other, and certainly God. The result of that is usually constant fighting and quarreling. Okay? First half of verse 2, he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. So James says the life lived on the world side of the line is not only filled with insatiable lust, but it's also filled with hatred, right? The, the reference to murder in this verse is most certainly uh, hyperbole, right? There, there probably wasn't actually rampant murder taking place in the church. But James is simply, again, teaching what Jesus taught. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus said, you've heard it said to those of old. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So James points out these Christians are so overtaken by their lustful desires, it has come to the point that they've actually begun hating each other because they're not getting what they want from each other. So again, when you, when you love the world, according to James, you're a lover of self, which means you're a hater of God. Okay, the rest of verse 2, he says, You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's talking about selfish ambition. They, they have great longing for things that they cannot have. Covet, in this verse, is the Greek word uh, zeleo. It means to burn with zeal. 
They're so blinded by selfishness, they cannot think about anything but themselves. And remember, this is happening in the church, right? I hate to be a visitor at that church on Sunday morning. Uh, Verse 3, moving on, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's talking about a sense of entitlement. This is when we believe that the world and everyone in it owes us something. We're, We're entitled to what we want, when we want it, whether it's God's will or not. But James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. In other words, because you're always focused on what you want, totally neglecting what God wants for you, you don't receive what you ask for. Right? When all of our love and affection is set on the world, our prayers land on deaf ears. On the contrary, when our primary concern is for God and His will, our prayers are most effective. First uh, John 5, 14 and 15 says, If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That's key. If you want God to hear your prayers, you pray with a yearning for Him and His will, not with lustful desire and selfish ambition and a sense of entitlement. Okay? Verse 15, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, that's as we're praying according to His will, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. So if you're single and you're looking for Mr. Right or Mrs. Right in your life, the very best and most effective thing that you can do in that search is to seek the will of God on that matter for your life. Before you go searching in in clubs or on the internet or dating services, search the heart of God for your life in deep and sustained prayer. As long as it takes. Ask Him for His will to be fulfilled in you. Put God's will before your own. His desire before your own. His passions before your own. His wants before your own. And you, He will hear you when you pray. And you will have the request that you've asked of Him. But it means submitting that search, that need, that desire, that want in your life to Him. And to His will first. Okay, and the, the, the final description that James offers... On the life lived on the the world side of the line is verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He calls them adulterous people because their lives are marked by unfaithfulness. They follow after the world instead of following after Christ. And when he says, you adulterous people, that's literally translated as you adulteresses. So James is actually referring to them as cheating wives. And that's a common theme, as we see in the Old Testament. God often referred to Israel's unfaithfulness uh, in this way. Jeremiah 3.20, God says to his people, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. Okay, so our love for the world or again, worldliness, always eventually will lead us into behavior that is unfaithful to God. And James puts an exclamation point on that fact when he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is very strong language. It's his usual confrontational style 
James draws a line in the sand. And he says, if you choose to stand on the world's side of the line, your life will be marked by insatiable lust, hatred, selfish ambition, entitlement, and unfaithfulness. Because when you chase after the world, you always end up putting yourself before God and before others. And and unfortunately, this is the side of the line that I think the majority of people spend their lives on, which can be very depressing if you let yourself think about it, sort of hopeless if you dwell on that too long until you get to verse 5. I'm so grateful for verse 5. This is where James defines the line itself. He not only validates these claims that he's making, but it explains the harshness, the heavy hand in his comments. Let's read it together. Chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? See, the line in the sand is God's love for us. It's his desire to be with us so much so that he's not willing to share us with the world. Think about it. How loving would it be for a man to say to his wife, I love you and I want relationship with you. But if you want to play around and have some affairs with other people, that's okay. You just come around whenever you need something or whenever you get lonely. Anytime you're between lovers, you come see me and I'll take you back in until until you're ready to go back out and play the field again. How loving would that be? No, that's, that's ridiculous. Of course, I understand that people actually do that today. They call them open relationships. And you can believe all that you want to, that that is healthy and beneficial to your relationship. But the reality is, Not only is that patently opposed to God's design from the beginning of creation for two to become one flesh. Now, he doesn't say three or four or ten become one flesh. His design is for two to become one. Not only that, but it rips away the sacrificial commitment, which is the depth of any relationship. It it tears the sacrificial commitment that Jesus modeled for us right out of the soul of the relationship. So there's no depth. There's no depth to a relationship without commitment. It will never be anything more than self-serving, which is precisely what James is describing in these first four verses. It's relationship without commitment. This is the church that had a relationship without commitment to Christ. But Jesus didn't just give us a little bit of himself. He gave us everything. And that's exactly what he requires from us in return. He's not willing to share us with the world. This is the line in the sand. His great love for us is the line in the sand. And we have to choose which side of that line we're going to live on. Remember verse 4, he says, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says to God's people, choose this day. You choose this day whom you will serve. You see, we choose which side of the line we're going to live on. And James understands that, which is why he's so passionate and so confrontational in his letter to the church, because he desperately wants them to live on the other side of the line. This is the heart of Christ 
in James passionately expressing his desire for them to step across that line. And so after describing life on the world side of the line in the first four verses, he explains what the line is. It's God's love and desire. It's his yearning for us. And then in the next five verses, he describes life on the other side of the line. Let's read it. Verses six through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So he he completely shifts gears in these five verses and he describes God's side of the line. This is where we reject worldliness and we live counter to the culture, which is what the, the video was describing earlier. This is where we live out our lives in humble obedience to God and then we receive all of the benefits that come with that. And so the attributes of that life lived on the God side of the line are dramatically different from what we see uh, on the other side of the line that we just looked at, okay? Verse six, we'll run through these as we did the others. James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So living on the God side of the line means living under his grace. When we choose to live in humble obedience to God, he extends his grace to us. Now, just to be clear, God extends grace to everyone. Jesus said uh, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, Matthew 5.45. God gives grace to everyone. None of us would be here otherwise. But notice that James says he gives more grace to the humble. He's talking about those who are actually following Christ. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love, the love that should be the hallmark of, of every follower of Christ. And he gives this whole list of descriptors. You're familiar with the passage. He talks about love and he says, love is patient and love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. It is not rude. And on and on and on he talks about love. And right in the middle of that list, he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. When, when we're in Christ, the love that we have for others and the love that we experience from others, and of course, including Christ himself, it keeps no record of wrongs. That is grace. When we let go of the hurts and frustrations that others have caused us, instead of stirring them up and storing them up so we can use them as ammunition for future conflict, we extend grace to others when we let go of the hurts of the past and we look forward in love. But that's not what the church was doing in James's letter. And because the church is the recipient of the greatest measure of God's grace, we're also the primary means through which His grace is expressed to others for all the world to see. Just think about your own experiences for a minute in church over the years. Have you ever been blessed by the church? If so, that is God's grace working through others in your own life. I've been on the receiving end of so much of God's grace when I've been in need through the church. In fact, Today is a great example. You've just taken up an offering. 
to help our family in a time of need. That wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't be receiving that help without the church. The truth is, people receive tremendous help and counsel and teaching and discipleship and provision and prayer and support and encouragement and friendship and acceptance through the church every single day. And that's just, that's just some of the more grace that you experience when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you're a member of his body, of his church, okay? So humble obedience... Obedience to Christ means living under more grace than when we follow after the world. Of course, it means living under saving grace. We know that. But beyond that, the grace that we continually experience as a part of his body, his church, is when we're following Christ. It's the more grace. And we get that most often through one another. And I'll just tell you, I want, I want all the grace that I can get. I want all the grace that I can get. I need it. Okay. First part of verse seven says, submit yourselves therefore to God. This means that we live a life of obedience. The word submit here is the Greek word hupotasso. It means to be under obedience. Again, it's easy here to think about some kind of list of do's and don'ts, but why do you require obedience from your own children? Right? Because you love them. You want to protect them. You want to see them succeed and flourish in life. So you require obedience from them. God feels the exact same way about us. And so requiring obedience from his children isn't oppressive or legalistic or outdated. It is the practical outworking of his love for us. It is is the very expression of his love for us. In fact, the most unloving thing that God could ever do toward us would be to not require obedience any obedience. It's like kicking us to the curb and saying, good luck. But God wouldn't do that because his love for us is all consuming. All right. Second half of verse seven, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That means when we live under God's grace and in obedience to him, when we, when we choose to stand on the God side of the line, we have freedom. Freedom from what? From sin and our enemy, the devil, right? How is that achieved? By his grace and through our obedience. When we live that way, he gives us the strength to stand firm against the enemy. And through that, he promises us freedom. Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, we can't do that if we're at enmity with God, right? But when we're standing with him, On his side of the equation, he gives us everything that we need to resist the devil and consequently experience freedom from sin and the the enemy's attacks against us. I uh, heard a pastor at at the conference we just attended in reference to marriages. He specializes in marriage counseling and marriage teaching. And he said, you know, the, the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. Talking about marriages. He's referring to all the people that he'd talked to over the many years of ministry that he'd counseled that said something to the effect of, if I had only married this person or that person, my life and marriage would be so much better. And the pastor said, no, no, it wouldn't. Because the grass isn't greener on the other side. He said, the grass is greener wherever you water it. So water your own marriage. Work on your own marriage and it will grow. And that is, by the way, a great example of how we resist the devil. He's constantly 
prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour, according to Peter. And he's been most effective at that, at least in modern history, in our marriages. And so when we do nothing to resist the temptations that are constantly thrust in front of us in our culture today to be unfaithful in our marriages, the enemy has no reason to flee. He just sticks around and keeps working. But when we work on our marriages, when we water that lawn, when we actively work on our relationships, we resist him and his attacks against our marriages and against our families. When you do that enough, the enemy will flee and your marriage will grow stronger and your family will grow stronger. Okay, let's keep going. The first half of verse eight, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It just keeps getting better. He's talking about intimacy with the father, intimacy with God. James says, God opposes the proud, verse 6, but when we walk in humble submission, obedience to him, under his grace and in his freedom, he allows us to draw near to him. And when we do that, he responds in kind. He draws near to us, which is the key to understanding his will for your life and hearing his voice and following his leading. It's by staying close to him. In obedience, in submission, under his grace, in his freedom, when we do that, we can remain close to him because he draws close to us. And yet there's a tendency for a lot of people, maybe, uh, maybe most people, when we're struggling with things like sin or faithlessness or doubt, there's a tendency to pull away from God because we fear his disapproval in those times. And yet the very thing that we need the most in those times is to be close to God. Why? Because he is the answer to every need and every shortcoming in our lives. But instead of drawing closer to him, we often pull away because of shame or fear. But listen, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. I love this passage. He says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. In every respect. He's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us when everything is perfect. Well, and that's not what it says, is it? He says that we might receive mercy and the grace that we need to help when in our times of need. James isn't saying, or excuse me, uh, the, this writer isn't saying you can only approach God confidently when you have your act together and your life is all in order. No, he says Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses so we can approach the Father, how? With confidence so that we can receive the mercy and grace that we need at our most desperate hour. We're all searching for fulfillment, aren't we? We are. Everyone is searching for fulfillment in this life. Everyone is looking for fulfillment in this life. And I'm telling you, there is no safer, healthier, more prosperous, inspiring, fulfilling place for you to be than when you're close, intimately close with God. Okay, the second half of verse 8, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It sounds like a rebuke here from James, but it's not. It's a call to purity. The terms cleanse and purify were Old Testament terms for ritual purity and ethical purity. Just as the Old Testament priests were uh, called to be pure, 
so too are all followers of Jesus called to be pure. Okay, back to 1 John chapter 3 in, in verses 1 through 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So when we're in Christ, we're made pure even as He is pure. But to be clear, John's talking about those who are living on the God side of the line. Verse 1, he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. These children of God, according to John, are living counter to the culture so much so that the world doesn't know them. These are believers on the God side of the line. So our purity is not found in our works. It is certainly not found in the world. It is found and only found in Jesus Christ. Again, John said, everyone who thus hopes in him, in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So trying harder not to sin, white knuckling it, as my friend Jared says, will not make you pure. Deprecating yourself, hating yourself will not make you pure. Paying some kind of penance will not make you pure. In fact, even following all of the rules, just like the rich young ruler did, will not make you pure. There is only, only, only one thing, one person to be specific, that can make you pure. And that is Jesus Christ alone. We take all of our good and all of our bad, and we take all of our confidence and all of our fear, all of our triumphs and all of our failures, all that we've ever been, all that we are, everything that we could ever hope to be, and we take all of it and we drop it at the foot of the cross, completely submitting our lives in repentance and commitment to Jesus Christ. It is then and only, only, only then that we will be made pure. He is the answer for every single need. He's the answer for every lack and every fear and every uncertainty in our lives. He, he takes all of our impurity and he makes us pure. No one else can do that. That's why all of our confidence is in Jesus Christ alone. A, a guy that I know put a post on Facebook the other day. And he was really wound up because he said, why doesn't the church, why don't pastors from the pulpit make, make more of a point to talk about uh, what is happening in our society, about the persecution that is coming to the church, about the oppressiveness that's coming from our government, about the abuse that's coming to the church from culture. Why don't we focus more on that and warn people what's coming? We've got to tell people what's happening. And he was really upset at pastors and he kind of railed away on his post. And I thought, and I didn't respond because I don't get involved in social media wars. That's just a policy of mine. So I didn't, this is what's happening in my little brain, right? I didn't actually write this. But if you think about the first century, when these guys were writing the New Testament, 
the church was under infinitely more persecution than we are today. I mean, come on. They were being burned at the stake for being Christians. Crucified upside down. I mean, seriously. How bad do we have it right now? In the first century, Paul was beaten to a pulp, stoned nearly to death, locked in prison more times than we probably know about. He was persecuted and chased to within an inch of his life on many occasions. If there was ever a person in history who had the right to talk about the coming persecution of the church, warning people to watch out for what's coming, it had to be the Apostle Paul, right? And yet when I read what he wrote, I only see one thing. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. In fact, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Why did Paul say that? Because Jesus Christ is the answer to all of it. We can talk about the problems till the cows come home. I don't want to hear about the problems as much as I want to know the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. So when we stand behind the pulpit, yeah, as Christians, we should talk about issues. I'm very political. I'm involved. I vote. Absolutely. We should preach the whole counsel of God and talk about prophecy and end time events. We're going to probably move into the book of Daniel after James. Yeah, absolutely. But if when you walk away from church on Sunday morning, if you can't say that sermon was about Jesus Christ, then I failed you. Because every single sermon from behind this pulpit is about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that's what this whole Bible is about. It all points to Christ. That's why all of our confidence is in him alone and not in ourselves and our own abilities and our own goodness and our own efforts to be pure and our own, uh, when we try to check off a list of goodness, we can't. There's no confidence in any of that. All of our confidence is in Christ alone. Let's continue. Verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James isn't saying God wants you to be miserable. It sounds like it. What he's saying is that in Christ, we live in humility. This verse, like uh, much of James' writing, is a reference right back to the Old Testament. He's specifically referring to uh, the prophets who were broken over the lost. Isaiah uh, in 15.2, Jeremiah in 6.26. The Old Testament prophets were completely broken over the lost. And James is saying, humble yourselves and mourn for his coming judgment for those who are not following Christ. Of course, We should all be broken over the lost in this world. That's an aspect of our humility in Christ. It's understanding that it's not by our works that we become heirs with him, but only by his grace and mercy through faith. Why? So we cannot boast, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So in Christ, we live in humility and brokenness for the lost. In fact, we talk a lot in church circles about evangelism. We contemplate why the church in America isn't more proactive about evangelism. We strategize new ways to get people interested in evangelism. We create new programs for evangelism. We try to identify the people in our congregations who have the gift of the evangelist. And all that's fine. 
All of that is good. But the fact is, until there's a genuine brokenness among the people of God for the lost in this world, we will never take great strides to evangelize them. Until our hearts are broken for the multitudes who are dying every day without Christ, we will never go out of our way to share the good news of the gospel with them. It is a brokenness for the lost that should drive us to the lost. We should be so compelled by humble hearts that agonize over those who are not following Christ that we use every opportunity to speak the truth into people's lives all around us. And I'm trying to do this in my own life. I'm not talking about standing on a street corner with a bullhorn. I'm talking about every time I open my mouth in relationship with others, what comes out is Jesus Christ. Even when I'm not talking about Jesus Christ, it's him in me coming out in everything that I say and do. That's how we're all to live. I personally believe that if the church today was truly broken over lost souls, that we wouldn't need evangelism programs at all because people would already be doing the work in their everyday conversations and interactions with those that they encounter on a regular basis. Okay? A humble brokenness for the lost should be a hallmark for every Christian. And then in verse 10... James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So in our humility, when we are in Christ, he brings us to a righteous place of exaltation. This is another reference by James to the teachings of Christ. As Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 12. And we we find this teaching all through the New Testament by Jesus. It's in uh, Mary's song of praise Uh, in Luke 152. It's in 1 Peter uh, 5, 6. So if we try to live by the world's standards, which means self-exaltation, making sure that we get our moment in the sun, we will surely be humbled by God. But if we humble ourselves, we will be exalted by God. And I know as well as anyone, trust me, how difficult it can be to humble yourself. But I would much rather humble myself than be humbled by God. Whatever discomfort I may feel by not seeing to it that I get the praise I think I might deserve... Whatever discomfort that may be, it pales in comparison to the discomfort of being humbled by the Lord God Almighty. Think about that. The prodigal son, uh, Jonah, Samson, David, Peter. There are a lot of great examples uh, for us to learn by in Scripture. In fact, I was uh, watching a video of a guy the other day talking about the different ways that we learn in life. And he said the first way that we, we learn things is by our mistakes. And he said the second way that we learn... Is from other people's mistakes. And he said, I don't know about you, but I'd much rather learn a really hard lesson by watching someone else go through it than by experiencing it myself. And I thought, amen to that. Right? There is much that we can learn from the stories in this book without ever having to make those same mistakes. If we would but humble ourselves and let God exalt us at his appointed time. Okay, so when you look back at this list, the one that resides on the God side of the line, the line that James draws in the sand here, we see people living in grace, obedience, freedom, intimacy with God, purity, humility, and exaltation. That sounds a lot better to me than the first list. 
insatiable lust, hatred, selfish ambition, entitlement, and unfaithfulness. Okay, look, it isn't about a list of rules. It's about God's confounding love for us. The fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he do that? Why would anyone do that? Let alone Jesus Christ, because he loves us that much, so much so that he's drawn a line in the sand. And he says, this line here represents my love for you. And you can walk in all the grace, obedience, freedom, intimacy with me, purity, humility, and exaltation that comes with it if you choose the way of my love. Or you can stand on the other side of the line and love the world instead, and you won't experience any of the wonder that I alone offer you. Why? Why, why can't we have both? Because you cannot serve two masters. You have to choose this day whom you will serve. And it's only because of God's love. Not some dead legalistic religion. It is only because of his love for us that we even have a choice. We surely don't deserve it. We could never hope to earn it. And so there's this line in the sand. Which side do you want to live on? Somehow we got this mixed up idea that if we could just do enough to please God that we would somehow curry his favor or maybe, just maybe, in the end he'll decide that we did just enough to squeak our way into heaven by the sweat of our brow. The problem with that, among other things, is that once people realize that we could never measure up in this life to a perfect standard, they will often just give up and walk away. And then they live the rest of their lives as enemies of God because no one ever told them that this whole deal, this entire lifetime journey of following Jesus Christ is about one thing. It's about love, not a list. It's about taking that one simple step across that line out of the world and into the love of God. I'm telling you, the choice is yours. Which side of the line do you want to be on? Let's pray.